0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Your Letter of Reference to the Last Judgment. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November the 23rd, 2014. It's been 27 long weeks of ordinary time since the last church feast on Pentecost Sunday, an entire half-year. And next Sunday begins a new church year with the season of Advent. But until then, this last Sunday of the liturgical year confronts us with the last judgment at the end of time. Matthew 25, 31 to 46, raises several complicated questions. Is this a parable or not? The last judgment is of all the nations. There's language about eternal reward in punishment. And both the blessed and the cursed are surprised by their destinies. But these important questions shouldn't obscure a simple truth. In the words of James Forbes, the former pastor of Riverside Church in New York City, nobody gets to heaven without a letter of reference from the poor. And so we read in Matthew twenty-five, thirty-one to 46, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. To follow Jesus means to care for the poor. There's no other way. Last week I read a book by two people who spent their lives struggling against what they call the insomnia of the scandal of poverty. It's called, In the Company of the Poor, Conversations with Dr. Paul Farmer and Father Gustavo Gutierrez. Father Gutierrez, born in 1928, is a Dominican priest and theologian who splits his time between his parish in Lima, Peru, where for 50 years he has lived and worked among the poor, and teaching at Notre Dame University. Back in 1971, he published a game-changer of a book called A Theology of Liberation, which established his reputation as the so-called Father of Liberation Theology, and made famous the notion of a preferential option for the poor. Paul Farmer was born the same year that Gutierrez was ordained, 1959. He's a Harvard M.D. and Ph.D. in anthropology, clinician, tuberculosis specialist, author of numerous books and scholarly articles, recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant, and professor of medical anthropology at Harvard Medical School. That is, when he's not living in a hut in his beloved Haiti, where he founded Partners in Health, or traveling a quarter million miles a year to lecture visit prisons, or meet with George Soros or the Gates Foundation. Paul Farmer's story is told by Tracy Kidder in the remarkable book Mountains Beyond Mountains. When Farmer was in college, he read Gutierrez and other liberation theologians. When he founded Partners in Health in 1987, He took his legal mission statement for incorporation directly from Gutierrez. It reads Our mission is to provide a preferential option for the poor in health care. His debt to Gutierrez is further seen in his later book, Pathologies of Power. Both Gutierrez and Farmer reject the many so-called explanations for why so many people are so poor. It's not nobody's fault, or just the way things are. Poverty doesn't result from accidental forces of history. The deplorable disparities between rich and poor aren't escapable, inescapable, or necessary. Rather, they result from human agency, structural violence, economic policies, and corporate strategies. People are poor because of the choices other people have made. And as Farmer likes to point out, disease makes its own preferential option for the poor that leads to early death. When people who ministered in the poorest half of the world coined the term preferential option for the poor 40 years ago, they said something not only about our human choices, but also about an essential aspect of God's character that demands a response. In their view, God is biased, even prejudiced. Far from being neutral or impartial, They argued that God plays favorites, you might say, by bestowing special favor on the dispossessed, and he asks us to do the same by imitating his character. This was not a new idea. It's a prominent theme throughout scripture, especially in prophets like Amos and poetry like Psalm 146. When Paul met with the Christian leaders in Jerusalem, he says in Galatians 2, verse 10, that, quote, The only thing they asked us to do was to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. For ten years, as he itinerated among groups of new believers, Paul organized a famine relief effort for the people in Jerusalem. In Acts, Luke describes the daily distribution of food to widows. And James says that true and undefiled religion is to care for widows and orphans. A hundred years later, Tertullian wrote how God had a so-called peculiar respect for the lowly, and that caring for the poor was the distinctive sign of believers. Even the pagan emperor Julian the Apostate in the 4th century, who vehemently opposed Christians and stripped them of their rights and privileges, acknowledges acknowledged that the Christian preferential option for the poor was such that he said, the godless Galileans feed not only their poor, but ours. In his book, Charity, The Place of the Poor, in the biblical tradition. Gary Anderson notes that Christian care for the poor isn't just a utilitarian act of social justice. Bill Gates does that. An altruistic act with no element of self-interest or expectation of reward, as Immanuel Kant once said. And not even merely a sign of a believer's personal faith, as in the Protestant reformers. Rather, care for the poor is the privileged way to serve God. We care for the poor not out of guilt, ascetic renunciation, some communistic ideal that loathes private property, nor because the poor are virtuous. Rather, in serving the poor, we care for our own souls by imitating the character of God himself. Only in heaven, said Mother Teresa, will we understand how much we owe the poor for helping us to love God like we should. And one final detail, what about hell and final judgment? That's mentioned in Matthew 25:31 to 46. In the very last sentence of his chapter, Hell, in his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis put it this way, This chapter is not about your wife or son, nor about Nero or Judas Iscariot. It is about you and me. For books this week, I review a title by Michael Coogan. It's called The Ten Commandments, A Short History of an Ancient Text. New Haven, Yale University Press, 2014. This book is 176 pages. By rabbinic tradition, there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament but pride of place goes to the Ten Commandments. There are three versions of the Ten Commandments, each slightly different than the other. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, and then again Exodus 34. They are inscribed on the Supreme Court building. They've been the subject of several Supreme Court cases, in an epic 1956 film by Cecil DeMille. Michael Coogan, director of public relations at Harvard's Semitic Museum and lecturer in Old Testament at the Harvard Divinity School, explores in what sense this divinely written code, 2,000 years old and written by the finger of God on tablets of stone, is still rightly considered an authoritative text for today. In their original historical context, the Ten Commandments were part of God's covenant contract with his chosen people, Israel. After admittedly piling conjecture on conjecture, Coogan reaches a fairly conservative conclusion. The Decalogue, he says, is very ancient, older than its expansions in the redacted biblical sources rather than from 5th or 6th century BCE, and the covenant that it formulates, and perhaps even the formulation as Ten Short Commandments, is the essence of the teaching of Moses himself. In his longest chapter, Coogan suggests the meaning of each one of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are limited to the people of Israel. The prohibitions against polytheism and images, the name of God, and the Sabbath rest. The other commands are not too unusual and could could apply to broader society. Parents, murder, adultery, kidnapping, perjury, and property. And notice... Slaves and women are taken for granted as property, which is a tip-off that we need to be careful about applying the Decalogue to today. Neither Jews nor Christians consistently observe the prohibition against images, for example. The Apostle Paul said that Christ was the end of the law. It would be neither wise nor good to apply the Decalogue in a pluralistic society, says Coogan, even though they rightly enjoy a privileged status among Jews and Christians. Michael Coogan, The Ten Commandments, a short history of an ancient text. For movies this week I review a very interesting documentary called People of a Feather, 2013. It's an Inuit movie. The people featured in this film are the Inuit of the Belcher Islands in the Hudson Bay of the Canadian Arctic. The feather in the title is that of the eider duck, which is central to their way of life. The 90-minute documentary is partly a study of how traditional life has changed for these Inuit. The cultural clashes are everywhere. They hunt by harpoons and rock slings, but also by shotguns. They travel by snowmobiles and motorboats, as well as by kayaks and sled dogs. Their small homes, when they're not in igloos, include flat-screen televisions. Radios feature American rock music to which the teenagers rap and break dance. Another narrative explores the dramatic changes in the sea ice ecosystems and ocean currents due to climate change and hydroelectric dams. There have been major die offs of the eiders due to the changes. Their feather symbolizes the sociological and the environmental. The movie features footage from seven Arctic winters. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. Once again, from the Inuit people of the Hudson Bay, the movie is called People of a Feather. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by the famous Robert Louis Stevenson. You'll remember Robert Louis Stevenson as the author of Treasure Island, but in fact he was a prolific writer. When he died of a stroke in his house on Samoa at the age of 44, his collected works would eventually run to some 30 volumes. Stevenson was born in Edinburgh in 1850, He died in 1894. The poem we've posted is called The Celestial Surgeon. If I have faltered more or less in my great task of happiness, if I have moved among my race and shown no glorious morning face, if beams from happy human eyes have moved me not, If morning skies, books, and my food and summer rain Knocked on my sullen heart in vain, Lord, thy most pointed pleasure take And stab my spirit broad awake. Robert Louis Stevenson, The Celestial Surgeon Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, November 23rd, 2014, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.